0: Hey, good morning. I was thinking yesterday that the animal for the state of Oregon is the beaver. I don't know. I don't know why I thought that, but Second Peter chapter one, verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of, Of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self control, and self control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for Allowing us to be partakers of your nature, image bearers, reflectors. We thank you that because of your work, we can now partake in the precious promises. And I pray that we would respond by. Seeing these qualities added to our life. So today, Lord, may you move us and help us and guide us into truth. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. If you don't know, we're doing a series we call King Me. And in this series, we are looking at kind of the big idea of what it means to be a believer. So you get saved, now what? And in 2 Peter chapter 1, you kind of have this salvation, verses 3 and 4. And then you have almost like marching orders. Walk this out now. Have these qualities being added to you. And this, I just think of it as a vocabulary list. And it's a list of words that I think as Americans we're starting to lose. That there's a change in the words that we use and the stories that we tell and what we think is important and not important. And these words are falling out of our common usage. So part of this series is to get us to start seeing, hey, these these are really important qualities. If we want to flourish and do super well, then we should know what these qualities are and really start saying, Jesus, add these to me. Because the last verse says, verse eight, if these things are yours and are increasing, they're gonna keep you from being unfruitful and ineffective. Or I'll put it positively, they're gonna help you flourish. So now we're at the third word. We did faith, we did virtue, and now we're at knowledge. And there's a theme in the Bible, and the theme is this, that following Jesus isn't a sprint. Hebrews 12, one says that we're to run this race with endurance. You don't have endurance in a sprint. You need endurance for a marathon. That was what they ran at this time. They they, they ran marathons. If you know the story, Fidepides, was told to run 26.2 miles to save the city of Athens. Let me ask you, if right now you were asked to run 26.2 miles to save the city of Grants Pass, who here could run 26.2 miles? It's a little bit arrogant, but maybe you are really in good shape. So you can, here's your moment, shine. Now let me ask if you were to train for six months and prepare yourself. Who here thinks that after six months of training, I could run 26.2 miles? Yeah, more of us, right? That there, there's like a process you could be like, okay, I can learn some stuff, I can go. If you talk to a runner, they'll tell you, you go through these stages of running. Like there's the initial stage. And that stage is when you are feeling good, the birds are singing, the sun is shining. You're beautiful. Your dad's got money. Your mom's good looking. You are a high performance automobile, right? Now that stage lasts a certain length of time based on your conditioning. For me, it's four or five steps. And then it just becomes running like, oh, why am I doing this? This hurts, ouch, right? So you have these steps and you talk to any marathoner, they say this, there is something you have to beware of. It's called bonking. It's you can be in the best condition in the world. You could have trained for six months. You can be an elite athlete. But if you don't keep fuel coming into your body, you're burning so much fuel that you can get to a point where you just, you can't move. You can't go any further. It's called bonking. In order to keep runners from bonking, there'll be these tables in a marathon every mile, whatever. And on that table, there'll be carved drinks or um, certain things to eat to help you refuel. I read about one race in Duluth, Minnesota, where on one of those tables, guess what they have? Bacon. How awesome is that? It's raw, but it's still bacon. I'm kidding. It's not raw. It's just, you gotta gotta get some calories in you, why not bacon? And then about a mile down the road, they have a whole table of defibrillators, just keep people going because you ate bacon when you're running. I thought I'd run that race. All that is, you gotta keep fueling up so that you can run this race with endurance. The Christian life is just like that. It's an endurance run. And if we are not continually fueling up, we'll bonk out. Well, what is the fuel for this Christian race? Peter hits it right here. He just calls it knowledge. Jesus puts it like this. It's Matthew 4.4. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If we're going to truly live, it can't just be about gains, whatever we're eating, it also has to be about God's word, what we're taking in. It's the fuel, right? It's not just Jesus. It's not just Peter. It is a theme in the Bible over and over and over. This is meat. Hebrews 5.14 says, this is like steak. Peter in his first epistle says, it's like milk, drink it. Job, who knew about enduring difficulty, in Job 23, 12, Job says this, I esteemed your word more than my necessary bread. Job's saying, if I had a choice between eating the food I need for that day or hearing from you, I would choose to hear from you. Jeremiah says the same thing in Jeremiah 15. Ezekiel, the book we're studying on Wednesday night, right here, you're invited. Brilliant book. We'll talk about chapter three this week where a scroll is given to Ezekiel and God, his spirit says, eat the scroll. And so Jeremiah eats the scroll and he says, excuse me, Ezekiel eats the scroll and he says, it was sweet like honey. But what did he eat? Well, throughout the Psalms, over and over, God's word is compared to honey, right? He was eating God's word. It's it's over and over. One of my favorites, maybe you don't know this text, I think it's awesome. It's Psalm 107 verse 20. And it puts God's word in this light. It says, he sent his word and it healed them. Have you ever been healed by God's word? You're reading the Bible, you're in a difficult situation, you need perseverance, you need endurance, and all of a sudden you come across a verse or a text or something, and in that moment, you're healed. You're like, oh, that's it. So strong, so powerful. God's word heals, okay? So we've been doing this thing where we've been not just looking at theology. We've been trying to look at a person So for faith it was Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Daniel, for virtue it was Joseph. I think there's a guy that typifies knowledge in the Bible. His name, the Apostle Paul, totally. If you know his story, he would have grown up in a culture that demanded he memorize the first five books of the Bible. Some of us have never read the first five books of the Bible let alone memorize them. Some of us don't know the names of the first five books of the Bible, let alone memorize them. He memorized the first five books of the Bible. He was a great student. So then he went to the number one teacher at that time. His name is Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, according to history, said this, he had one fault that he found in Paul. And the fault was this. He couldn't find enough books for Paul to read. That's not a very big fault, is it? Man, I hate that student, can't get him enough books. So he's a great student. Here's what I love about Paul though. It's the last thing we hear about Paul. It's his last letter and he knows this, I'm gonna die now. In fact, he says it in chapter four of 2 Timothy, I finished my course, I'm ready to be offered up. I'm done, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go to the next chapter that God has for me. I'm done here. And then right after that, he says this, it's verse 12. He says to Timothy, hey, when you come visit me in my prison, bring my coat, bring the books, and bring the parchments. He still wants to read. He knows he's going to die. He knows this is the end of the road for him. But guess what? Hey, I still want to learn. There's no end to learning. He is a lifelong learner. Why? Because he's being shaped for eternity. It's not just about this life. It's about the next one. And so he's always saying, I want more. I want more. My prayer for Edgewater is that we are a group of lifelong learners, knowing this is shaping us, not just for this life, but in the one to come. That's what he tells Paul or t- tells Timothy. Godliness helps you in this life and in the next one as well. So be about this business. It's why I went back to school. At 40 years of age, I just felt like I need to be challenged. So I'm going back to school. I want to be a lifelong learner. And there are two kind of major takeaways I got from seminary. Number one is this. I learned that I don't know very much. Like the more I learned, the more I learned, I don't know very much. Like they were teaching me things I'd never heard of before. Like I'm like, what? I didn't even know I didn't know that. I was blissfully ignorant, kind of liked it that way. Now I learned all this stuff that I don't know. And the second thing I learned was this, people, men that I super admire, changed the world as we know it, disagreed on very important theological ideas. They loved Jesus, served him, dedicated to him, and yet very important things, they had different ideas theologically on them. I'll give you one example. Martin Luther, spark plug of the Protestant Reformation, and John Calvin, maybe one of the most premier theologians, okay? They had very different ideas on Jesus and the cross. Is that an important theology? Oh my goodness, right? It's very important. Martin Luther said, the cross was Christus victor. That the work of the cross defeated Satan, sin, and death. That's what happened on the cross. John Calvin said, no, 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 no. The cross was substitutionary atonement. Jesus taking our spot on one of the most important doctrines in the Bible. Two people who love Jesus have very different ideas of what it accomplishes. So here's what that did to me. I realized Believers have a lot of different opinions on very important subjects, right? Have you noticed that? Have you ever talked about the Bible with other believers and not agreed with them? Happens all the time, right? There's a joke about it. What's the difference between a terrorist and a Christian? You can negotiate with a terrorist. (laughs) Because we get our ideas and we're not changing them. And part of that's really healthy. Like, I will not change this. But there's also a decision that we have to be making as believers like, well, what do I believe? Was it Christus Victor or was it substitutionary atonement? Like if, if we're really gonna be stopping at the tables to fuel up for life, we're gonna be facing those decisions all the time. Do I, A, believe this guy? B, believe that person? So in school, here's what I developed. I developed a grid by which I process information, knowledge to say yes or no to things. I just call it my ABCs. And that's what I'm going to share today. And I think you see these ABCs actually in the life of Paul. And they help me to say, yes, this is something I'm going to make part of my life. Something that I'm going to carve up on to help me endure. Or, nah, that's not really for me. Okay? So they're my ABCs. The A is this. When I talk about learning, my A is this. It's accomplish. What does this theology accomplish in my life? What does it produce in me? Where does it move me? Where does it take me? Now, maybe I'm hypersensitive to this because I grew up in a church that's a little bit different than us. And the church that I grew up in, they were very much, the world is gonna end, book of Eli, Mad Max, like that kind of a scenario. So my mom went out and she actually bought 450 pounds of wheat berries so that we could make it through the Mad Max time, right? When the Mad Max tribulation did not come, we had our own tribulation, which was eating 450 pounds of wheat berries, which we ate them all, right? So there was this kind of underlying theology of look out, the end is coming. And it was, it it just, it, 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 invaded every avenue. So as a seven-year-old, I was taken out to a church out in Selma, little Baptist church out there, and we watched a great movie called A Thief in the Night. Who here has seen that movie? My heart breaks for you, I will pray for you, <laughs> right? So I'm watching that movie as a, as a youngster, and I'm watching it, and the guillotines come back, and it's like, it's bad times. And there's a scene I will never get out of my mind. It's this man is in jail and this child hands, hands this man a balloon. And he takes a balloon, he's led out by these guards and you see out through the prison window, a guillotine. And that guillotine goes down, shink! And guess what you see float up? A balloon. It's why I hate balloons to this day. <laughs> Clowns and balloons scare me. I'm like, guillotine, oh no. <laughs> right? Like, so th- there was this, this side and they're like, ah! Ah! And I can remember having a conversation with this guy, like my older brother and I loved this guy. His name was Armin. And he had just, he was, he had the biggest arm. I just remember thinking, that's impossible. He was a big, he just had the biggest guns you could imagine. Kind of like myself, not to brag, but. <laughs> so we just loved Armin. Armin, one time, he's a young guy just breathing this in. And he said this to us. He said, man, I feel sorry for you guys. And we're like, why? Ah, oh, because the world's going to end. And so you guys are never gonna have a chance to grow up and get married and have kids. And we're like, what? Number one, girls have cooties, so that's not a problem, but really? (laughs) Like, that's the way it was. It was just, what it was producing was this this kind of like, oh no, look out mentality. And so for me, I think I wanna be really careful in what something produces. So what to me was missing in my heart, maybe it was preached, I just didn't pick it up. Is this Jesus says John 16:33 In this world you will have tribulation. Right? Bible's really honest. World's broken? You do have an enemy? There will be tribulation. But Jesus continues and he says this, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. That's the side that was missing for me. Like there's hope. Like Jesus can take even the fractured stuff of this world and our culture and everything else and that he can take it all. And judo theology, he can bring good out of it because he's overcome it. That all things work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Like I was missing those sides. And so for me, I'm always thinking, what does this theology produce? What does it accomplish? And here's what I believe is the goal for Jesus in my life and in your guys' life. Do you know what it is? John 10, 10b. I have come that you might have life and it more abundantly. Like that's Jesus' goal. I left heaven, came down, incarnation, walked, talked, taught. Why? So Matt Heverly, you could have life and you could have it more abundantly. And I think that was Genesis 1 and 2. God creating a good space, puts Adam and Eve in it, says, be abundant, or I'll use the word flourish. I think Paul had that same attitude. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says this. Eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, the wonderful things that God has in store for those that love him. Does that sound like flourishing? Man, it does to me. Or Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we could ask or think according to the power that works in us for his glory and for his kingdom. I think the goal for you and me is to flourish. That does not mean life is gonna be easy. So you can balance that with 2 Corinthians 4, 17 that puts it this way. These light afflictions are but for a moment, but they're working for me an exceeding great weight of glory. So even if I go through difficulty, I know this, Jesus's goal with those difficulties is to make me a heavyweight through eternity. I don't want you to be a heavyweight. And the only way I'm gonna get you there is sometimes with a little bit of difficulty, sometimes with a lot of difficulty, but it's all for a purpose and a goal. And when I get that goal, man, that's a great goal. I can endure the race. The goal is so important. It's like a doctor. When a doctor, he, he trains or she trains, and then they have to go through residency where they're treated like a slave for years But the goal is there. I want to get out there and I want to accomplish this. It's like military. You got to get through the boot camp before you can protect our country. It's like parenthood. You got to get through 18 years before you can hand them a suitcase and seven feathers or whatever it is. I don't know. (laughs) Right? You know there's a goal out there and I'm waiting to get there. That's the big idea, Matt, I want you to, aflo- to flourish. So I'm always looking at theology. What does this accomplish? Utilitarian, what does this accomplish in my life? Because if it's causing me to flourish, then guess what? I can put up with a neighbor who's a jerk and who never repairs the road. And for 20 years, I've repaired those potholes and nobody has helped me. But guess what you say? I'm okay with that. Because Jesus will use all these things for my good with a boss who doesn't appreciate me, with a job that does not fulfill me because I'm trusting Jesus, you'll either open a new door for me or this is what I need right now. And I trust you with that. That's what. So I'm always running what I'm learning through what does this accomplish? That my goal, and I shared this on a Wednesday, a couple of Wednesdays ago, that the goal I think for us, it's actually in 1 Kings 22 where you see this divine council meeting with God and determining what to do in the world. Like that's my eventual goal, not to rule over people, but to rule over the cosmos with God. And he's gonna keep creating and keep making. And he's got plans to expand throughout the entire cosmos. And I get to join in with Jesus in that rule and reign. And I say, if that's the goal, I'll put up with whatever. Praise you. So number one, my grid is, what does it accomplish? Number two... The B is the big idea. Is this important? Does this matter? Or is this a distraction? Because we get sucked into a lot of things that don't matter theologically. I'll give you one. Genesis chapter one. The very first chapter in the Bible. Have you ever had a debate or talk with somebody that differs in your system on Genesis chapter one, right? You can just, it's unbelievable the different ideas that there are about Genesis one. Is it seven 24 hour sequential days? Is there a gap somewhere in there? Are these days ages? Are there, are they 24 hours, but there's great gaps in between them? Is there actually differences in the days? Some are 12-hour days, some are 24-hour days. And the last one is actually an eternal day. Like I've written papers on this. I've studied this. It's unbelievable the differences believers have on those seven days. I call them the seven days that divide Christians. We don't agree on that. The very first chapter, (laughs) it's amazing to me. I was talking with this one person and um, the fossil record came up. And so I said, well, okay, what do you think about the fossil record? This was her answer. The fossils were hidden there by Satan to test our faith. I'm like, do you want to nuance that at all? Nope. Okay, crazy hour's over. I must go now. I mean, where in the Bible do we even get the hint of something like that? It's like so much conjecture. there's all this kind of, really? I am convinced and I have yet to have anyone show me differently. There is not enough proof in Genesis one and two to put a date on it. We don't know how long Adam and Eve lived. We don't know how long Genesis one and two was before Genesis one, three. So we just don't have those answers. So at some point we just got to say, hmm, not sure. And when I think about the big idea, here's what I go. What does the rest of the Bible seem to keep repeating? Because God's highlighter is repetition. Is it seven sequential days? Is that what's repeated throughout the rest of the Bible? No. Do you know what's repeated? God is the creator. Jesus is the creator. What's repeated is not the seven days, it's God creates. So if I'm going to stick with big ideas, I'm very quickly going to say to somebody that wants to argue about how long it was, take however long you want, man. I don't care. Six days, 6,000 days, six, I don't care. Now let's talk about did God create? Or it's the ontological arguments for God. And I'll tell you, they're so powerful. If you want to really cause people to think about creation, talk about the ontological, just Google it. The ontological arguments for God. They're brilliant. So I just say, hey, have that. Let's get that out of the way. I don't care. Now let's talk about did God create? That's to me, the big idea. That's what's repeated through the rest of the Bible. Even bigger than that. When I look at the Bible, I ask myself, what's the big story of the Bible? What's the main idea? From Genesis 3.15, all the way through Revelation, it's redemption through Jesus Christ. There's your big idea. So if I'm going to focus on something and I'm going to really study it, I'm going to study redemption through Jesus Christ. And I think Paul would agree with me. Let me read this text for you. This is a text I think believers who tend toward this kind of thing should read all the time. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all, I got liberty I can study what I want. I have made myself a servant to all. What's gonna help them? That I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. That's big picture. I'm gonna stick with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you do, a lot of the weird nuttiness that divides believers just disappears. We're not like, well, the fossils were hidden there by Satan to test us. We're not like, fill in the blank is the antichrist. It just happens always to seem to be whoever's running for the president on the Democrat side. We just put their name in there. Just, every four years, we have a new one, right? New candidate. We stop some of that stuff, Right? At least I hope so. Well, King James only, it's only the King James Bible. That's the only thing that contains the gospel. Really? Man, I don't know about that. You must homeschool your kids. If you don't homeschool your kids, you're hurting them and killing them. Really? I don't know about that. We get nutty. You have to wear pants. You can't drink caffeine. You just go on and on and on about everything we start to debate over and divide over. It's wrong. But if we keep the main thing the main thing, it doesn't happen. Can you eat crab? Can you eat your steak rare? I don't know about that. If you drive a Mercedes, you're a sinner, but if you drive a Volkswagen, you are saved, right? (laughs) We start going down these crazy, nutty roads. But if we come back to Paul and what he says, you just stay away from that stuff. It's, It's Christians can become nitpicky. Do you know what nitpicky is? A nit is a lice egg. Nitpicky is picking them out of somebody's hair. Yeah, ooh is right. Like a a freakish monkey, like, "Mm, that's good. (laughs) Please don't. Keep the main thing, the main thing. My mission is to make Jesus beautiful and to keep some of my ugly, idiotic opinions to myself. That's like my mission. And I've got a lot of ugly, idiotic ideas. Like I still believe Volkswagens are the best vehicle. Even after the scandal, I'm like, no, they're still great. Right? That's just an opinion. I'm not gonna preach it. Because I want to preach the gospel and the mission of Jesus to heal us. So I talk with people that struggle with homosexuality, or they have sons or daughters that are engaging in homosexual stuff, and and there's always this kind of like, well, come on, you guys have changed. You believed in slavery, you don't believe in slavery now. Right? In the Old Testament, uh, you couldn't eat shellfish, but man, I see you eating shellfish now. So why can't people just love who they want to love? And if you've been in those conversations, it's just round and round and round. It's like a merry-go-round without the merry, right? Here's what I do now. As quick as possible, I move the conversation to Jesus. I say, well, do you think, do you think this world is the way it's supposed to be? Like, is there a shalom in this world where things work right or, 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 Has something happened that's kicked the record and it just feels like things are skipping and the the beat's not quite right right now? That that people are broken, like fundamentally, there's just kind of a brokenness in people and how we respond to one another. That on Black Friday, somebody would kill somebody over a G.I. Joe action figure with a Kung Fu grip. Like that's broken, right? We can agree with that. It's amazing how quickly we start to agree. Well, did you know that Jesus came to reconcile that stuff and create a new kind of humanity in all of us? Like I go to Jesus as quick as I can. Jesus, listen to me. I've said this before. Jesus is the deep end of theology. Everything else is the kiddie pool. Stay out of the kiddie pool, right? Because if you're an adult in the kiddie pool, number one, someone's gonna call the cops on you. What does that dude do in the kiddie pool? Get him out. And number two, you're gonna hit these unnaturally warm pockets. They're just gross. You don't wanna be in there. Stay in the deep end, for crying out loud. That's the big idea. So in my grid, I'm constantly saying, is this part of the big ideas of the Bible? It's called biblical theology. There are things that go from beginning to end and they really matter. That's my B. A, what's it accomplishing in me? B, are these the big ideas of the Bible? And then C, maybe C is this the character of God. What does this do to God's character? I have seen in my life a lot of, I think, incorrect ideas about God. And those incorrect ideas about God begin to affect us. Do you know that? Here's my analogy. What you believe you will be living even if it's a lie. So if you're married and you believe your spouse is cheating on you, even though it's a lie, will that change how you live your life? Completely. So the New Testament has all these warnings about, look out, look out for heresy. In fact, most of the book of Second Peter is look out. And to me, one of the core things that we need to be super vigilant toward is what does this theology do to God's character? I think sometimes churches, like they look at God almost like he's a drill sergeant. That what he cares about is like hours of study and discipline and prayer, all good things. But it's like that becomes what God is all about. That what God wants is spiritual crew cuts and pastors who tuck in their shirts and God's happy. Then other churches, it's almost like God's a high school principal that all God cares about is attendance. And so there's all these kinds of ways to make people attend church. Like there was a church in Arizona, they raffled off a Harley Davidson, had it at the front of the church. Every Sunday that you came, you got a raffle ticket. The more Sundays you came, the more raffle tickets you got. And after whatever it was, three months, they had a drawing and you got to win that free Harley Davidson. Are you kidding me? It's not gambling because it's for God, right? This is free, so the messages are kept really short and, and not really that probing because we just want attendance. So some people, it's like God's just some kind of school principal. Others, it's like God is a grumpy old man and he gets angry whenever we enjoy ourselves. So you went wakeboarding instead of witnessing? Oh, hell for you. So tired of these wakeboarders. They're sinners, send them to hell. And then we start to pick up some of these ideas and we start to bring them into our kind of theology. And so God becomes like a math teacher and the Bible has all these kind of codes where you got to figure them out. Like what is the 666? It's visa number times your social security number divided by the last day of the Mayan calendar, 5,722. Right? It just gets crazy. Like is God like hiding things in codes or I don't know. I don't think that's what God is. And then people that I've talked to and walked with that will come to me like believing they blaspheme the Holy Spirit because they see God as Zeus. And he's up on his mountain waiting to hurl down lightning bolts on us. So you sin, look out, your tranny's gonna blow up. You sin, look out, your son's gonna get sick. You sin, look out, you're gonna get cancer. And there's all this kind of thought about God and it makes God very, very ugly is what happens. And so for me, my final thing is, what does this do to the character of God? Listen to what, how Paul sees him. It's second, First Timothy, excuse me, chapter one, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's Paul saying, pay attention to this that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Why did Jesus come? To judge us? To give us cancer? To blow up our transmissions? Uh Uh-uh. Save sinners. Of whom I'm the worst. (laughs) But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus came to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. And he's been patient with me and merciful to me, and he's a really great king, and I cannot wait to serve with him through eternity. That's his theology. Do you believe God is for you? Do you believe that God actually pursues your joy? Because he does. Let me read for you. I'm going to read to you a bunch of verses. Just listen. Beginning in Psalm Chapter four, verse seven. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What did David just say right there? I've got more joy than the guy on Friday who just got his paycheck and went to whatever and drank a bunch of grape juice. I got more joy than him. More joy than that, dude. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm six. For you make him most blessed forever. I love that. Not just blessed, the most blessed. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Psalm 36, eight. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delight. Jesus, I have come that they might have life and it more abundantly. The first message preached in the book of Acts puts it this way, chapter two, verse 28. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Romans 2, four. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What's supposed to bring repentance to us? His wrath? Lightning bolts? No. His kindness. Then the last one. 1 Timothy six seventeen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What does he provide us with to enjoy? Everything. So many Christians think like, oh, I can't do that, I can't do that. Man, if, yeah, there's prohibitions in the Bible, totally, but there's a bunch of freedom. Everything to enjoy. Wakeboarding. To enjoy. I think the number one theological understanding we have to have about God is this. He is good, and he is a generous, loving father that wants the absolute best for his kids. That does not mean it's always going to be easy for us, because sometimes any parent knows this, son, daughter, you need a little bit of difficulty, maybe a lot of difficulty, because it's going to round you out right but we do it because we love them. That's God. He is a good, generous, heavenly father. And when you get that, here's what happens to you. All of a sudden, this book is no longer like a duty, like, oh, great. It's more, I gotta know more. I wanna know him. How could he be so good? How could his character be that way? It's like this. Husbands, wives, when you started seeing your spouse, there was a process, right? For me, it went like this. Charity and I started seeing each other. Before we could get really serious, I left and went to Mexico for three and a half months. So now I'm in Mexico and she's up here. And back then, this is 1998, we wrote letters to each other. So we're writing letters back and forth, just writing them. And I had to keep pondering the eternal question. How do I conclude my letter? Do I write, Love you, Matt? Do I write, Love ya, Matt? Do I write, I love you, Matt? Or do I go really casual, like, Sincerely, Matthew? Cordially yours, Matthew, right? Here's why. I know this: If I wrote, "I love you, Matt," I was putting myself out way further than she had, and I was head over heels for her. I knew I'd outpunted my coverage, and I just didn't want her to realize that. So I'm trying to figure out like, what does she think about me? Does she reciprocate? Do I write that? And then she doesn't write that back to me. She writes like, cordially yours. I'm like, ow, right? So I'm in this kind of quandary, but I know if I don't do that, then some other filthy animal might be able to date her. So I was just stuck and words mattered. The order, the exact wording mattered. Why? Because I loved her and I still do. That's what happens when all of a sudden you realize God is this good, generous, heavenly father. Words matter. Whoa, he said that about me? You mean he demonstrated his love for me that when I was a sinner, Christ died for me? Oh my goodness, I gotta know more. And it transforms your reality and transforms the way you see God and transforms your life. That's what I want. And this book is no longer a duty, it becomes delicious. I wanna devour it, I want to know it. It is what keeps me enduring. So those are my ABCs. What does it accomplish in my life? Is it with the big ideas that really matter? And what does it do to the character of God? Is it showing him to be good and generous? Because that's what I know him to be. And I'll tell you, there's no better way of knowing the goodness and generosity of God than coming to communion. That he would leave paradise, leave comfort, leave heaven, come and live and walk and suffer. Why? Because he says, I want you to be with me. I want to reconcile you. I want to fix what's broken in you. I want to heal you so that you can become part of my family, ruling and reigning over the cosmos for eternity. That's what this is right here. So when you take this today, I would ask you to think one thing. How much he loves you. That his body would be broken so you could be complete. That his blood would be shed so you could be clean. That he would leave comfort so that we could be comforted. That he would go to hell so that you and I never would have to. That's how much he loves us. And so Jesus... May we delight in you, I pray. May we eat and drink of your love this day. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.